Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. David Shulkin, uh, who is a physician executive that has served as a chief executive of multiple hospitals, and then also is the ninth secretary of the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs under both Pre- Presidents Obama and Trump. So, Dr. Shulkin, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Awesome. Awesome. So I gave you a little bit of an introduction, but maybe tell us a little bit about your background specifically. You know, what, you know, in your early days, what did you do your residency training in? And then how did you make your way into, you know, being a hospital in into hospital administration, if you will? Well, I wish that I could tell you that there was a well thought out plan, but you know, life just happened. And, um, you know, actually I, I, I thought I wanted to be a fireman, not a doctor, but circumstances led me to go to medical school. And, um, when I was in medical school, I did a summer in Washington as a health policy fellow working on Congress, working on Capitol Hill in the Senate. So I got a little exposure to health policy. And when I finished my residency in internal medicine, I ended up staying an extra year at the University of Pittsburgh to do a fellowship in general internal medicine, where I did research on the cost of healthcare. And I got so interested in sort of how healthcare was working and not working and what was beginning to happen in terms of the change of the autonomy of medicine and the growth of managed care and the loss of um, you know, professionalism in many ways that I did two additional years at the University of Pennsylvania as a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation clinical scholar. And so I found myself after three years following my clinical training in internal medicine that I had a skill set in the business of medicine and the, the science of how healthcare is run, healthcare systems, but there were no jobs in that area. So I actually helped to create the first official job description as the chief medical officer. And that was at the University of Pennsylvania where I became their first chief medical officer. And that led me into a management role that I stayed there for 10 years and then went on to be the chief executive officer of a number of different health systems before ultimately, as you mentioned, finding my way in the government. That's really interesting. So you've you've had, not only did you kind of have that exposure early on in medical school, like you mentioned, and then you kind of sought out this extra training. I know you said maybe at the time it didn't seem like it was all 
a, a you know a plan kind of or a road ahead but maybe looking back you kind of were following a the road to where you ended up being <laughs> yeah you know i think that's a good insight um i remember my academic uh supervisors you know who you would call them your professors used to say that much of what i was doing i should consider as a hobby because it didn't really fit into an academic model you know the academic model at the time was you get grants you publish papers you go through a tradition promotional process and if you were doing things that weren't related to that it was considered again a hobby outside of your professional career yet i was pursuing things like trying to understand you know how doctors were getting paid and you know where what was costing money in the system and that just didn't fit I ultimately ended up helping create an academic promotion track at the University of Pennsylvania and ended up getting promoted, not as a physician scientist or as an expert clinician, but in my area of expertise of administrative medicine. And so hopefully that helped forge the way for others to follow in my footsteps. But yeah, at times it seemed pretty lonely because you didn't have a lot of people who understood what you were doing. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I mean, now that's that's such a focus of everything is, you know, how are things paid for? How can we decrease burden on the healthcare system and all, all those types of things? I'm curious from your perspective, as when you finally got to being like the chief executive officer, what what were I, I imagine there were, you know, the, the amount of ways that it was gratifying and challenging at the same time could be we could probably do a whole podcast just on that. But I guess maybe what stands out when you look back on those years as kind of the most gratifying aspect and maybe what was the most challenging aspect? Well, I have to say that, you know, becoming a chief executive officer, uh, certainly at the time I took my first job as CEO, uh, physician executives were in the very minority. There were less than 5% of us in the country. And rather than sort of run away from that, I ran to that in that I've always defined my job, even as chief executive officer, as being first a physician. And so that's the way I always looked at things, that we were caring for patients who had, who needed our help at the most vulnerable times of their lives, and that my job was to help them and keep them safe. And so my focus on quality and safety as a chief executive officer was first priority. And finances uh, basically were lower on my priority scale which is maybe an explanation about why I've had so many jobs in healthcare, because, you know, if the choice was between making a patient environment safe or making it profitable, you knew I was going to pick the safe side. Uh, and, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, create apologies for that, but obviously I think the goal of a successful executive in healthcare is to find that alignment between what's the right thing clinically and also, where is the business case and what is the right financial alignment? And when you can make the alignment between clinic, clinical and finance, that's where you really get movement in today's healthcare system. And that's what I look for, those aligned opportunities to get involved in. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, man, there, especially coming from the perspective of a physician, you know, making, doing right by the patient, doing, you know, safe patient care but also in the realm of it's kind of an interesting model in healthcare that you still got to keep the lights on while still trying to be 
you know, altruistic and provide the best patient care. I think that's, that's an interesting point. So I'm curious, you know, you, you've made it to the top here, you know, CEO of these different hospitals, what made you kind of jump ship essentially from the private sector into uh, government and, and serving uh, in the department of veterans affairs? Well, like most things in my career and what I find with many people is, is that um, there is no plan to do that. I've always operated on the belief that I've always learned from other people. So I've been genuinely curious and meet a lot of people. Uh, and one day I met a person who said, did you have any regrets in your career? And I said, well, maybe one. And that is that I never had a chance to serve my country. And not too long after that, I got a call from President Obama, who said, you know, you're probably noticing in the newspaper that there's a crisis going on at the Department of Veteran Affairs. And I've been told that you may be the guy to help us get this fixed. And um, when the president asks for your help, I uh, feel like most people would probably do the same thing. I said, how can I help? And before I knew it, uh, 11 months later, after a lot of vetting from, from uh, the White House and from Congress, because you have to get confirmed, but you know, I found myself sitting in Washington running the VA healthcare system. Pretty amazing, yeah. I can imagine it's it's hard to say no to when the president calls. Um, yeah, I'm I'm curious. You know, what's really interesting is you served under two administrations, and I think that's you yeah. know one a testament to you know the work that you did. That obviously it was you know I imagine in the best interest of the veterans and and the VA, and not you know necessarily for one political agenda versus the other. Um, I'm curious, you know, maybe give us a brief overview of you know what that job entailed. You know, maybe at a, at a high level, and what was your what did you? What were you most proud of when you kind of look back on on those years? Yeah, well, there's a there's a lot in there. In fact, I wrote a book about it. <laughs> and if people are interested in the answer to that question, it's called "It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country." But uh, I think I think very briefly, I just on the points that you mentioned, Max. Um, you know, number one is is that uh, I went into the job uh, really for public service, not for political reasons. In fact. I was the last member of a president's cabinet to receive a hundred to zero confirmation by the Senate. Uh, and I got a hundred to zero vote, not once, but twice. And when I left government and members of Congress held a reception for me, they said, you know, we've been working with David for four and a half years. We couldn't tell you if he's a Republican or a Democrat. And I said, that's perfect because that's the way I believe public service should be. I was working for the veterans, not for a political party and not for the politics of an administration. Secondly, I think, you know, what was I most proud of? Um, I came in at a time of crisis in the VA. It was called the wait time crisis. It was first exposed in 2014, where hundreds of thousands of veterans returning from Iraq and Afghanistan, some of them older from the Vietnam Wars, were not able to get care and there were allegations veterans were dying. When I you know, was able to tell President Obama at the end of his term that we had fixed that, I was pretty confident that we had, that we had moved towards same day appointments, that there were not veterans waiting for urgent care and that we had systems in place to make sure that didn't happen again. So I would think that would be what I was most proud of. But there was a lot to the job um, and a lot of things that when I left weren't were unfinished business. One of those was veteran suicide. Way too many veterans 
uh, are taking their own lives. We have many more veterans who have uh, committed suicide than uh, have lost their life in actual combat. Uh, that was something that I created as the top clinical priority of the VA. It still is today, and it still is a pretty significant problem. But the job is uh, there to serve veterans. How do you do that best? Well, first of all, you have to make sure that you're in touch with veterans and veteran service organizations, veterans, families, veteran caregivers. Uh, I never served myself, so I felt a special obligation to be close to the people I was serving to make sure I understood what their needs were and whether we were doing a good job. Secondly, you have to be very close to your employees. The VA has 430,000 employees. If you're distant from them as secretary, you don't really know what tools and training and other things that they need, resources that they need to do the job. Third is you have 435 members of your board of trustees. That's called Congress. Almost every uh, congressman and congresswoman has a VA facility in their district. <laughs> and so they all have an opinion about how you can be doing your job and you need to be listening to that and taking that seriously. And then last, you have the administration. Uh, you work for the president. I served at the pleasure of the president. I was a member of the president's cabinet. Uh, and so you have to make sure that you are there understanding their perspective and the White House's perspective on how they want the country and government being run. So I'm trying to create a multifaceted set of uh, groups and people that you need to work with, but all focused on trying to get better services, care, and uh, responsiveness to the veterans in this country. Sure. Yeah, that's that's amazing, especially when you outline it like that. It's it, you had a, a number of, I guess, people you had to interact with both, you know, you know, below your level and above your level as well. I, I imagine that was <laughs> quite a juggling act. <laughs> yes. Um, the other thing, you know, I think is, you know, interesting, you know, you always kept it focused on the veterans. And, you know, I, you know, I never served myself, but my my grandfather was a World War II veteran and a frequent sure. patient of the VA. And, you know, he always received excellent care there. And then I've also had the privilege as a resident to serve, you know, our veterans as at the VA yes. here in Atlanta, um, as you're sure, I'm sure you're aware, is a pretty big facility here. Um, and I think, you know, many of the things you brought up, I, you know, I noticed that, that, the, you know, this focus on, you know, mental care for the vet, the veterans and, you know, increasing access and things like that. I think those those are important. I guess, when you, you know, the VA system, you, you could probably argue is the biggest system out there. I guess, what do you think are kind of like the big things with implementing something like that across such a, a large system? How do you get all these people, I guess, in alignment, <laughs> if, if that's even possible? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it is the largest health system in the country. Uh, it's also the only health system that I know of who has responsibility for delivering care, no matter where the veteran lives, even if the health system doesn't have a facility there. So a lot of veterans choose to live in rural areas. They don't like condensed metropolitan areas. And so you can imagine the challenges of providing care in very remote areas where they're not only facilities, but you don't have many healthcare professionals, especially specialists. Uh, so so the VA has particular challenges. That's why it relies heavily upon technology like telehealth. It relies upon 
partnerships with community providers, whether they're physicians or other providers or community hospitals or even academic hospitals. Those partnerships are part of weaving together a network to make it work for the veteran. Very cool. Um, I'm curious, you know, since you've you've left office, you know, you, I know you've been involved in, you know, a lot of consulting and advisory roles for different technology companies. I think you were you're an advisor on the board of uh, Theater, which is I've had Tamir Wolf on previously on the podcast. I'm curious, so how do you, how do you pick the different you know technologies you you want to get involved with, and how do you, I guess, use your prior experience both in the private and public sector to help these companies get their technology uh, into clinics and helping patients? Yeah. No, it's a good question. As I think I've uh, said several times in the podcast, and so I'll stay consistent, um, I, I, I generally don't operate with a defined plan. And I allow myself to meet people, um, to be curious, to learn. And what I've had the fortune to come across are really interesting companies or entrepreneurs or people who run organizations or health systems that are out there trying to really work hard to make the system work better. And I do believe that our system in the United States in particular has many, many strengths, but there's a lot of opportunity to make this system work better for the people that it serves. And so when I meet somebody that I think is doing something that is really important or impactful. Uh, and there's a way that I can be part of that. I look for the ability to help them. Now, um, sometimes that is a Fortune 50 company, and sometimes it's a startup of a guy in, in his basement trying to work on an idea. And the people I work with span the spectrum. And they span the spectrum from nonprofits, particularly in the veteran and mental health space, all the way to very profitable companies. Because uh, to me, the factor that I look for, what excites me, where that alignment is, is people who think they can change the world. And, you know, I that's infectious and I want to be part of that. That's really cool. That's really inspiring, uh, especially at how you are involved in such a variety of companies. I'm curious from your perspective, you know, the VA, like you mentioned, it's the largest health system in the country. What's your kind of primary advice to these med tech startups for, because I imagine that's a ripe opportunity to get, you know, a, a technology into a lot of different patients' hands or a lot of, you know, or help a lot of different providers. And I guess, you know, I think maybe in some people may forget about the VA at, some, at times, you know, because they're so focused yeah. on, you know, the big academic centers. What I guess, what's your primary advice for uh, companies trying to get their technology into the VA system and, and benefiting veterans? Yeah, I, I, I am very cautious, particularly with startup companies, to target the VA as an early customer. There are the exceptions, and there are a number that have gotten into the VA very early, and then that has really made their company be successful. And the VA is not only a great client, but unless you do something pretty bad, it's a it's a place that generally wants to continue to work with you and you stay there for a long time and it's consistent, steady income, you know. So, but the reason why I think that it is not a great choice for the majority of early startups is because what early startups need to do is they need to show uh, 
you know, quick results. Their their investors or their resources to stay in investment mode uh, is not nearly as long as a big company that could stay with an investment to try to get VA business for a while. And the VA tends to uh, make its decisions about who it works with based upon things like past experience and people who have worked with government with demonstrated track records. So startups generally don't do that well. But I would suggest that companies that do want to and believe that they really can be helpful and it's part of their mission to be offering their services to veterans and feel like they can contribute, that they work with people who understand the government and the VA environment that, 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 you know, I know having worked in the private sector, that just running a healthcare system is not the same as running a VA. Um, these are different systems with different cultures, different rules, different ways about thinking about things. And you need to have people who understand who you're trying to help and sell into. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Definitely. Uh, I'm curious also from your past experience as a you know a chief executive in the private uh, sector for hospitals, what do you think, you know, when s- startups, where do you think they can kind of, then fall short or maybe they don't think of things where, you know, from the administrative level, you know, they're trying to get their, you know, products into, you know, these big health systems, but they may miss the mark and you, or where you've seen that done well, you know, as, as from your experience as a, you know, administrator and both and as a physician for that matter. Well, I think any startup needs to be working on a problem in healthcare that hasn't been solved, where there's a a gap in the solutions to the problems. And then they need to understand their customer. And, you know, selling into health systems today is very challenging because most are financially challenged and very few Uh, are able to make resource investments without a clear site to a return on investment. So, so I think knowing your customer, um, you know, having a clear value proposition when you go to approach them is absolutely essential. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. I'm curious, kind of, as we, as we wrap up here, what, which technologies are you most excited about? Do you think, you know, you mentioned your, you know, you, you, tend to go towards, you know, technologies that make a big impact, I guess, which if you had to pick, you know, a couple that you're really excited about or that you've worked or you even worked on personally uh, that you're excited about at this time? Well, I think I think that in general, what I say the big problems in healthcare are, are that we're still not good at making accurate diagnoses. We're still not good at once a diagnosis is made, getting the patient to the right treatment that's personalized for them. And then we're not good at delivering a sort of a comprehensive solution. We still tend to be very siloed and fragmented in healthcare. So on the on the diagnostic front, you know, this is where I think the AI machine learning type tools are really important. And I'm excited about that. On the matching the patient to the right therapy, I think personalized and you know, genomic, proteomic data, but also allowing uh, companies like Theater that you mentioned that can help a physician, and in their case, a surgeon, do a better job on their patient. These are all technologies that I think are important. And on creating a fragment, uh, less fragmented, but sort of more comprehensive experience, 
I think that companies that are helping provide data integration, but also companies that can provide um, a care team to a patient are important. I happen to have founded one of those companies with my daughter to help patients in chronic pain management. The company is called Override, and we provide a care team and an interdisciplinary care solution for patients with chronic pain. And I think that model fits well with many chronic illnesses and fits well with many uh, conditions that have a behavioral health care component as well. Really interesting, especially that point about your uh, founding that company with your daughter. That's That, that must yeah. be a really cool and uh, fruitful experience for you. If we can help people, that's that's one of the things that I said really attracts me to important things. Sure, sure. No, that's, and that certainly is a very important uh, yeah. You know, healthcare issue for sure. I guess the the last thing I ask every guest this, you know, when you're not helping companies or with uh, what, what, how do you find that balance? What are your, I guess, pursuits outside of uh, your work that kind of help you find that balance if that's possible? <laughs> yeah. If I, if I ever find an answer to that question, I'll come back on the podcast to share it. That's something that I still haven't quite figured out. I wouldn't say I have the right level of balance. I learned that a lot from my wife. She's a physician who I met in our first year of medical school, and she has balanced her life between professional and personal. I tend to love what I do, and I put myself pretty full-time into my work. Of course, the only thing that matters to me more than work is family, and so when I'm not working, that's where that's what I'm doing. But I'm not a big uh, hobby person at this point in my life. Interesting. Yeah. No. I mean, if you do what you love, I think what is it? You never work a day in your life. Is what they say. Exactly. So, <laughs> so the the last the last thing is, I want to thank you so much for taking time on your very busy schedule. You sure. know, where can people, you know, if they want to connect with you on, you know, you know, a company or a technology they're working on, or seek your services, or just even. You know, any platforms you may be, uh, we'll definitely link these, but definitely so you can say them out loud so people can hear them. Well, um, I think I'm easiest to find on LinkedIn, and and um, you know, I I uh, I would recommend that as a social media platform for me. But if somebody was interested, they could go to my website at shulkinsolutions.com. Perfect. Perfect. We will definitely link those uh, in the description. And right. Dr. Shulkin, I just want to say again, thank you so much for taking time. It was, it was a really interesting conversation. Nice talking to you, Max. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or a review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.